to you and welcome to our service tonight. Tonight I'm going to talk with you a little while about the subject of bewaring of false teachers. In Matthew the seventh chapter at verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In 1 John, the fourth chapter, at verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so he gives us fair warning. When two different teachers teach contradictory doctrines, one has to be wrong. One has to be wrong. Both might be wrong. We could illustrate that simply by saying, Two and two equals four. We all all know that. If someone comes along and tells us well, two, two, four, or two plus two equals five, and another one comes along and says two plus two equals eight, well, they're both wrong. But if they disagree with one another, if they teach opposite things on the same doctrine or teaching, then one has to be wrong. That's just, that's just logic, logical. And of course, that's why Jesus and his apostles warned forthrightly, straightforwardly, to be careful. That goes for all of us. You should not try to make your Salvation depend on saying, well, Brother Goff teaches that or Brother Nelson teaches that, preach that, it must be right. No, you need to study the Bible for yourself to make sure that we're teaching the truth. And also, there are different motivations. Now, what I'm going to be talking about tonight does not mean that I believe that all people who disagree with me on matters is dishonest. Even the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, said very plainly, I've lived in all good conscience of this day. And when he was persecuting Christians, he thought he was doing God's will. He was honest in that and said that he had lived in all good conscience, both before he became a Christian and after he became a Christian. He lived with a good conscience. So there are different motivations. Many people are sincerely wrong, but that doesn't make them right simply because they're sincere in what they do, even that if that is us. If we're sincere in what we're doing, but it's wrong, that doesn't make it right because simply we're sincere. So keep that, keep that in mind. So, there is a standard of truth. There is right and wrong. The Bible determines. God's word determines what is truth. And I have before me tonight, I have with me tonight, I'm not going to be reading from the book itself, but this is called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. 
It is this particular volume, there are two volumes, the Old Testament, I have the New Testament volume. This book covers the entire New Testament and is written by the faculty members of Dallas Theological Seminary over here in Dallas, Texas. They're very intelligent men. But the question is, are they right on some of the things that they teach? Now, I've read this book quite a bit in different places, and they, there's a lot of good teaching in it. But there are su certain subjects that I believe that they're influenced by men of the past, that they're, try they're trying to judge the Word of God by what the reformers, and for instance, of the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries and so forth, what they stood for, they're trying to judge what the Bible teaches by what they believed in that day. And that's the wrong standard. We must, uh, we must simply take what the Bible says at face value. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to be quoting some things from this as we, as we look at this tonight. So with that before us, let me see if, if I know where I am here. It's been a while since I've used this. Uh... Oh, there we go. Now, I have a heading for this. I believe it'll come up, maybe. Yeah, beware of false teachers. That's the passages that we just looked at. In Mark 16 and verse 16, Jesus, after he had said to his apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. I believe that's a very straightforward statement. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The and connects the two conditions. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. I believe that clearly teaches that both belief and baptism are necessary to salvation. But here's what is said about it by these writers of this commentary. Though the New Testament writers generally assume that under circumstances each believer will be baptized, 16, 6 Mark 16, 16 does not mean that baptism is a necessary requirement for personal salvation. The only requirement for appropriating God's salvation is faith. That's a little bit later in that that goes with that, uh, goes with that statement. Well, Upon what basis would they upon what basis would they say this? Well, the second half of the verse, which says, But he who does not believe will be condemned. Let me read you what the commentator says about that. The basis for condemnation is unbelief, obviously. Not the lack of any ritual observance. Baptism is not mentioned, that is in the latter part of verse, because unbelief precludes one giving a confession of faith while being baptized by water. 
Basically, he's saying that the lack of faith precludes or eliminates even the involvement of baptism. But he's not really living in accordance with that. Let me point this out. If that passage says, but he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be condemned. You know what that would result in? It would take both of them. The failure to do both to be condemned. But only unbelief will condemn a person. But just by belief alone, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we make other points. Just by belief alone does not, of course, mean that the latter part of that verse is not important. So let's look a little bit further. Yeah, here we go. Next one is John 3 at verse 5. Jesus answered, most assuredly, he's talking to Nicodemus, remember? He came to him by night, speaking with him, and Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, again, I think that's a very forthright statement. The birth must be by both spirit and water, water and spirit. Water referring to baptism. But I want you to notice what is said by the commentator on this, the book of John. The water refers to baptism. And he, he is approaching this, as you'll see as I continue. This is, this is one view that he's referring to, and it happens to be the view that I believe the Bible teaches. The water refers to baptism as an essential part of regeneration. He uses the word regeneration here as a synonym of salvation or justification. This view that water baptism is essential to salvation, this view contradicts other Bible verses that make it clear that salvation by faith that salvation is by faith alone. He gives John 3.16 as one of the passages, a very familiar passage to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice what he says about it. Makes it very clear that salvation is by faith alone. Where is the word alone in that passage? It's not there. And we are told not to add to the Word of God very plainly, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That, is, that brings condemnation by adding to the Word of God. There are many passages in the New Testament that teach us that salvation is by faith. And I believe that. But is it by a disobedient faith or by an obedient faith? If it's by a disobedient faith, Faith only is a dead faith, James says in James the second chapter. 
And so there's, there's a problem there with the attitude that these people have with regard to this. When they say this view that baptism is essential to salvation contradicts other Bible verses that teach salvation by faith alone. Find the passage that says it's by faith alone or faith only. That passage is not there. The only time faith only, the expression faith only, appears in the New Testament is in James 2, 24. You see then how that by works, obedience, works of faith, justification, and not by faith only or faith alone. Those are very plain statements. And uh, I don't see the need to explain away the meaning, the clear meaning of those, uh, of those passages of Scripture. He uses other passages there, and I'm not going to try to read all the passages, but I assure you that if you look at all of those passages, not a one of them teach justification by faith only or alone. Verse 36 that he has listed there. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Certainly that's true. We've got to believe. But belief involves, as we'll see before the end of the lesson, belief involves that which substantiates or manifests, shows forth our faith, works of faith, obedience to the faith, works of faith, not works by which we earn salvation, but works, of course, that are brought about by faith. In Ephesians 2, at verses 8 and 9, this is a passage that is often used, not only in our preaching, but in the preaching of those who want to try to justify the idea of justification or salvation by faith only. In Ephesians 2, at verse 8, he says, For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, why, lest any man should boast. Why would anybody boast? What kind of works could man do that he would boast about? The only kind is that if he lived a sinless life, never committed a sin and didn't need forgiveness of sins. Little children, little babies, never committed a sin. If they die in infancy, they don't need, we don't need to be concerned about them because they have, not, they have not committed sin. They're not capable of sin. They do not have yet, they have not yet grown to that, to that position. So, so we're born of water and the Spirit. And of course, under the direction of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, we're, we are born by the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no word. There would be no teaching as how to be right with God and how to come in this relationship with Him. So in that DSF I have there, those quotes from the commentary, that's Dallas Seminary Faculty. That's what those stands for. And uh, so next, let's look at the next passage. Acts 2.38. 
The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, when those people, after Peter had preached the sermon that has, is recorded in Acts 2, and concluded that Jesus Christ was both the Messiah and the Lord, Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ, they, they were cut to the heart. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Clearly, since he had charged them with being guilty of crucifying the Savior, his answer was, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, very plain that repent. If in that passage, if baptism is not necessary to the remission of sins, then why would repentance be? But these same people that say that this would, that this would nullify the idea of justification by faith if you added baptism as a, necessary, as a necessary condition to this remission of sins, it would, uh, it would of course, destroy the idea that justification is by faith. By faith only, as they teach it. Well, it's not by faith only. It is by faith. And faith includes the idea that we must do what Jesus tells us to do in order to receive that forgiveness. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift of the Holy Spirit is a result of baptism. Uh, baptism in water does not come, and it does not come in the form of baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only two instances in the New Testament where people were baptized with the Holy Spirit. That was promised to the apostles and that came on them on the day of Pentecost. And at the household of Cornelius in Acts the 10th and 11th chapters. Because, and why did it come upon them? We're told plainly in those chapters that it came upon them to prove to the apostles, to the Jewish people, who had always considered the Gentiles as dogs, you remember. They were not worthy of fellowship. To prove to them that God wanted the Gentiles included in the gospel system that they had the right to the same blessings that the Jews did through the gospel. Those passages make that very clear if you read both of those chapters as well as other verses in the New Testament that talks about that. But one of the professors there at the Dallas Theological Seminary says there are several views. One is that both repentance and baptism result in remission of sins. Of course, that's what we believe. It is, in this view, baptism is essential for salvation. The problem with this interpretation is that elsewhere in, the script, in Scripture, forgiveness of sins is based on faith alone. Comes right back to that again. And I've already read, what, uh, three of those uh, Context and those passages, but you can look at you can look at the other in Romans the, the fourth chapter at verse uh, seventeen. But God be thanked. No, that's that's chapter six, fourth chapter, verse seventeen. As I have made you, as it is written, as I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, 
God who gives life to the dead and calls these things, those things which do not exist as, they, as, uh, as though they did. But that does not, as you can see, the word alone or only is not found in that passage of Scripture. In Galatians, the third chapter, at verses 8 and 9, listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. But in that same chapter, at verse 26, it also says, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many, for, that little word for, English for, comes from the Greek word gar. And it is saying, here is the reason why that is so. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is not a work that earns salvation. How can anybody think that in the first place? A person being baptized really doesn't do much of anything anyway. A person that baptizes does more. Does more except to have the faith to, to submit and obey obey it. But how, how would anyone think that being baptized by someone else earns or pays for our salvation? That, that is just unimaginable. So it doesn't earn salvation. It doesn't pay for salvation. It doesn't say we've never sinned. No. It is an admission that we have sin and we need forgiveness of sins. And we believe that Jesus has that power, that he has that ability to save us from our sins. And he has told us to believe and be baptized. And we do that in faith. It is, it is a work of faith. It is a part of justification by faith. In this same book of Galatians, he talks about, on the other hand, circumcision. And he talks about, in chapter 5 of Galatians, if he be circumcised, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And so some of those Jewish people in the first century, they even thought that Gentiles had to be circumcised in the flesh, we're talking about, in order to be saved, in order to have fellowship with them. But that was a part of the Old, Old Testament system. And the only way a person could have been justified by the Old Testament system only was to have lived that law perfectly. And Galatians talks about that that those who are justified by the law only would have to live it perfectly. And so justification did not come by the law of Moses. Now those who lived under it had to do their best in living that 
faithfully and do what God told them to do in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. In other words, justification was by faith in the Old Testament just as, uh, as it is in the New Testament. The, the conditions were different. The laws were different under which they lived. But justification has always been by faith. That's why Abraham's justification was by faith. But it was by an obedient faith, and that's demonstrated over and over again in the New Testament. Well, we must move on. Acts 22:16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Is the idea of washing away sins, is that very hard to... Somebody said, I thought it was by the blood of Christ. Well, it certainly is. But how do we reach the blood of Christ? Paul talks about that. We'll read another passage that talks about that. But he said, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In that act of baptism, to wash away our sins, what are we doing? He said, you're calling on God to forgive you of your sins, to give you salvation, justification. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted the Old Testament passage that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel prophesied of that in Joel 2 at verse 32. And he quoted that in his sermon on, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he goes ahead in that sermon and teaches them. And when they said, what should we do? Why didn't Peter tell them? I've already told you. Just call on the name of the Lord. Everybody understands that means fall down on your knees and pray the sinner's prayer and ask God to save you. That's not the way he told them. He told them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, he was telling them how to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. And that's what's involved here as it's very plain. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. But, notice, two questions revolve about this verse. The professor says, first, when, Paul, when was Paul saved? On the Damascus Road or at Judas' house? That's when I, he was at Judas' house when Ananias, the preacher, came to him. Several factors suggest he was saved on the Damascus Road. And there's not a word in the New Testament that even gets close to saying that. But he, he uses this as, the, as his point. The gospel was presented to him directly by Christ. Not before he was baptized. For when you go to Acts the ninth chapter, which is one of the places his conversion is recorded, and read here, Acts 9. So the Lord said to him, well, this is what he said to, to Ananias, the preacher, to go to Paul, go to Saul of Tarsus. 
he as he journeyed and came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. This is nine and verse, Acts 9 and verse 3. Verse 4, Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Does that passage go ahead and say the Lord began to preach to him? What did he need to do? No. The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Where? In the city of Damascus. And so he goes into the city of Damascus, and that's when Ananias the preacher came to him and told him to arise and be baptized after he had spoken with him. We don't know how much teaching he did at that point, but evidently did, did some of the teaching. So that statement is not, is not true that he makes there. That he, uh, Jesus, presented to him directly there on the road to Damascus. That he preached to him directly at that time. No. And the second thing he says is already, Acts 22 and verse 10, Paul said that he had submitted in faith to Christ. Well, obviously he recognized that he was speaking to Jesus Christ, the very nature of that. And he manifested, of course, that he was going to be with him. But Jesus immediately told him, you go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. That's what Ananias did when he got into the city. He said, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. How can you get him saved on the road to Damascus when that is true? What, what would he need his sins washed away for there after he got to the city if he'd already been saved from his sins? Well, again, Romans, the sixth chapter, verses three and four, you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Why? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the Lord the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What's that teaching? That in baptism we reach the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. We're not literally baptized into the death of Jesus. We're baptized into the benefits of his death. And what are those benefits? Salvation, forgiveness of sins, salvation. But the professor says others take Romans 6.3 to refer to water baptism. And of course, certainly do. But the problem with this is that it seems to suggest that baptism saves. What would be so <laughs> terrible about that? However, the New Testament consistently denies baptismal, baptismal regeneration. Well, it looks like to me it's saying it over and over again. Every time in the New Testament, baptism and its Purpose is mentioned. 
Baptism always comes before salvation or its equal. Receiving the benefits of the death of Christ. Receiving forgiveness of sins or remission of sins. Being saved. And every, every other way that is expressed. Receiving the benefits of the death of Christ. Yes. And so, that's another place that they are. However, the New Testament consistently denies baptismal regeneration. I know what I was thinking there for just a second. In Titus, in Titus, the third chapter, listen to this. But when the kindness, verse 4 of Titus 3, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, that passage shows you that the washing here is not the washing of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is baptism of the Holy Spirit. For it is the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so that passage of Scripture denies what the professor says. Well, one more. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I already dealt with that a while ago, a little bit. But look at that again. You're all the sons of God, children of God. By faith or through faith in Jesus Christ, yes. For what reason? Based upon what? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, of course, it's obvious by what he says. The professor says this baptism is the baptism of or in the Holy Spirit which according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13, joins all believers to Christ and unites them within the church, Christ's body. This union with him means being clothed with Christ. Wait a minute. He's teaching in that passage of Scripture, if what he says is true there, he's teaching that one has to be in the church to be saved, but the denominational people in general they separate baptism from church membership. But he's got it tied together there. That won't work for them. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13 is talking about baptism into the one body. That's the word that's used, into the one body in that passage of Scripture. Baptism into the one body, and that one body is the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, when one is baptized in water for the remission of sins, he is also added, just as they were on the day of Pentecost. And those other passages that talk about the water specifically being baptized when? When the person heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and wanted the salvation that was promised. In Acts, the 8th chapter, the Ethiopian man said, Here's water, what does hinder me to be baptized? 
And Philip took him down into the water and baptized him. And these other passages we've been talking about is talking about the same situation. When people are saved, initially saved, by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pattern is the same. And they are inventing that idea that baptism in those passages they're having difficulty with is Holy Spirit baptism. As I said a while ago, Holy Spirit baptism only happened and identified as such in the two instances of the apostles on the day of Pentecost and the Gentiles at the household of Cornelius receiving it to prove why did they? The scriptures make it very clear that the Holy Spirit was sent upon them to prove that God wanted them to be a part of God's plan of salvation. So, that's a little bit of the testing that the Apostle John tells us to do. And I wanted to do a little bit of that tonight. I hope that will be a benefit to you. As I said earlier, though, don't take what I read, take those scriptures and read them and uh, see what the Bible teaches for yourself and not just depend on what somebody else says. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, you need to obey the gospel initially in these things we've been talking about, or the uh, plan for those who are children of God, when we sin as children of God. That's talked about in the New Testament also, to repent of our sins and pray to God for forgiveness. And you have the privilege to ask us to pray for you tonight if you'd like to do that. So as we, together we stand and sing. Jesus, give him all the hands to give on the cross the world's redeemed.